You know, there are times in life when we all have dreams about how our lives will turn out. And often the biggest dreams that we have in life are centered around career or marriage or perhaps retirement. And there's a time when we dream of the great job we'll have someday or the perfect marriage we'll enter into someday or the long, happy retirement that we'll enjoy someday. But often our dreams turn out quite different than what we imagined. Today, as we follow Jacob's story in Genesis 29, uh, I want to take the dream of marriage as our focal point. You know, for some people, it can be a hard and even a devastating thing not to be married. And for some others, it can be hard and sometimes devastating to be married. Well, marriage counselor Paul Stevens says there are generally two problems with marriage. First, not getting what you expect. And second, not expecting what you get. Well, marriage is a wonderful and many splendid thing, but it's not easy. Even well-matched marriages experience some conflict. Actually, it's impossible for two people in such close proximity as marriage to be without some kind of conflict in their interests or power or expectations. Marriage is a, a real good dream, but we want to be realistic about it. And there's no book that's more realistic about marriage than the Bible. Now, outside of the Christian faith, there's a lot of fear and cynicism about marriage. But among Christians, there's often a, a tendency to idealize marriage and say, ah, oh, marriage, that's what, uh, that's what we need. That's what it's all about, you know, conjugal harmony, the house, uh, the kids, the minivan, the white picket fence. But the Bible disagrees with both of these views. You know, God's word doesn't point to marriage and say, this is what you need. It does show us both the benefits and the, the difficulties of marriage, but it points to Jesus as the person that we need. It's him that we need in our life. And marriage, well, marriage is just one of the, the main places where the Lord prepares us for himself. Now, in marriage, each person is meant to learn how to lose themselves in the other through self-giving. Sort of like when a person enters the, the monastic life. You know, a novice monk makes certain vows before entering a, a monastery. A vow of poverty, a vow of chastity, and a vow of obedience. And when we enter marriage, we also make vows, not of poverty, but of shared property. Not of chastity, but of sexual fidelity. And not of obedience, but of mutual submission. And these commitments are necessary in marriage, and, and through them, Marriage becomes one of the ways that God changes us and deepens us and prepares us for himself. Now, whether your marriage is a good match or maybe a not-so-good match, God is still preparing us through it to receive his love and to find our place in his kingdom. So the give and take of marriage is one of the great shaping influences in our life. Both its joys and its disappointments become a crucible for faith formation. And it's largely through marriage that Jacob will be prepared to receive the Lord into the deeper parts of his being and be transformed eventually into a leader and a father of Israel. You know, the recurring pattern in the Bible is that God calls those who will be great leaders 
to have to endure a sort of a lengthy time of preparation, a wilderness experience or a time far away from the limelight. Abram, at 75 years old, was called to leave his country and his father's household and, and go to a land he did not know and wait in preparation for another 25 years before becoming the father of God's chosen family. Moses spent 40 years tending sheep on the backside of the desert before he was turned loose to lead God's flock. And David spent years in the wilderness as an outcast in preparation to reign from the throne of Israel. And Jacob has his wilderness years too. You know, from day one, his life was marked by conflict. Even in the womb, his life was a, a struggle with his twin brother Esau. His upbringing and his, his home life were full of plotting and conniving, and he learned how to lie and how to scheme pretty well. He thought he was, was well-equipped to play the world's games the world's way. But as we'll see, he gets beaten at his own game. These are the years of spiritual formation for Jacob, God's rough providences in his life. So when his brother Esau vows to kill him for taking his birthright and his blessing, Jacob has to run. And he flees all the way to the other side of the fertile crescent, to Mesopotamia and the home of his mother's relatives. But along the way, Jacob lies down one night to rest using a stone for a pillow. And that's where God apprehends Jacob in a dream of a stairway reaching to heaven. And in that dream, God promises to be with Jacob and to bless his life. So picking up the story here in Genesis 29, in the first part of verse 1, it says, Then Jacob continued on his journey. Now literally in the Hebrew it says, And Jacob lifted his feet. And I think that means that he's, uh, he's exhilarated here. He's feeling buoyant after that nighttime vision of angels in a stairway to heaven. And there's a lightness in his step as he continues his long journey to the east. But you know, the years ahead of him will be a time of God working very deeply in his life. These will be his wilderness years. So the remainder of verse 1 and verse 3 it says, And he came to the land of the eastern peoples, and there he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it, because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. And then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. So Jacob finally arrives here at a well near Haran, where his mother's relatives live, but he's penniless, he's empty-handed. And it's likely the same well where Abraham's servant found Rebekah as a wife for Isaac, Jacob's father. But Jacob's situation is different from his father Isaac's here. You know, when Abraham's servant came to that place and found Rebekah, it was with a caravan of camels and rich gifts and with much prayer. But Jacob shows up unprepared and prayerless. Verses 4 to 8. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? 
Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said, and here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high and is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. So although Jacob is unprepared, he has come to the right place. And this will be his second encounter, significant encounter, with a stone. There's this massive stone covering the mouth of this well here, probably to keep out animals and dust or to keep people from falling in. But it's so big, it actually takes several men to move it. And that's why several of the shepherds bring their flocks there together at the same time, so they can together move this stone. And that's why Nahor's daughter, Rachel, is bringing... uh, her sheep there just then, or Laban's daughter, rather. Verses 9 to 12. While she was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. And when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud, He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. Well, one look, that's all it took. Just one look. (laughs) And Jacob takes one look at Rachel and he's smitten. He immediately falls in love with beautiful Rachel, the shepherdess. He's got no gifts to give her. He's got no impressive caravan of camels to show off. So what's a young, penniless guy in love to do? Well, he'll show off his muscles. (laughs) And in a burst of surprising strength, he single-handedly rolls away that massive stone that was covering the well. And he waters Rachel's father's sheep. Well, it's a move that was meant to impress. And then to show he's not just a muscle-bound jock, (laughs) Jacob immediately displays his tender side, giving Rachel a a kiss and then getting all weepy and and introducing himself as her cousin. Well, it was a winning combination of strength, tenderness, and affection. And Rachel's impressed. And so she runs off home to tell her father Laban what had happened. Verses 13 to 14a. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. And then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. You know, some fathers would probably have come back to the well with a shotgun, you know, to deal with this insolent stranger, kissing his daughter, sweeping her off her feet. But not Laban. Laban is a a great conniver himself. He actually makes the wily Jacob look like an amateur. And Laban kind of quickly sizes up the situation and he sees a great advantage to himself here. He sees that Jacob is obviously very strong and so his strength will be useful to him. And he knows that he knows how to tend sheep. And so Laban welcomes Jacob and acknowledges their 
blood relationship and invites Jacob to stay and work with him. The verses 14b and 15. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Well, it sounds like a kind offer, but Jacob has become to Laban an invaluable worker. And so Laban comes up with a scheme or a plan to take Jacob for everything he's got. He waits a month for Jacob's love to, for Rachel to grow so that he can then use his daughter as a bargaining chip. Jacob, the wily schemer himself, kind of messed up here because when you're dealing with a shyster like Laban, you never let him know your weakness. But as soon as Laban sees Jacob will do anything to get Rachel, he's got him. <laughs> Jacob, the con artist, is outconned by his uncle Laban. And Laban exploits Jacob's weakness in order to solve two of his own problems. Uh, what are the problems? Well, first of all, the first problem is money. You know, Jacob's hard labor is now going to make Laban a lot more money. But the second problem to be solved is his daughter Leah. Verses 16 and 17. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. There's two daughters. The younger Rachel is gorgeous, and the older Leah, by comparison, is kind of the ugly duckling. It says she had weak eyes. And I don't know, maybe she was cross-eyed or something, or somehow she just didn't have that seductive sparkle in her eyes that Rachel had. And these two girls had grown up together and, uh, in Laban's household, and now Laban has a problem. And I know this whole business seems a bit ab abhorrent to us, but he's thinking, I'll never be able to marry off this older daughter off, but here's a way to both get rich and unburden myself of my older daughter at the same time. <laughs> That's the kind of guy he was. But, verses 18 to 20, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. And so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. So in view of the, the usual bride price here, Jacob worked seven years of hard labor to get Rachel. But he's so in love, it's all worth it, and the time just speeds by. But when those seven years are up, here's what happens. Verses 21 to 25. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. And so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. 
And so Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Well, Laban probably had this whole deception in mind from the beginning. He never specifically said it was Rachel that he would give to Jacob. And when Jacob said, Give me my wife, he didn't think to specify Rachel's name. And so Laban says, Okay. He throws a big wedding feast for the happy couple. Hebrew word there for feast in verse 22 actually means literally a drinking fest. And I know it's hard for us to imagine how Jacob could have been duped there in the marriage bed. But evening comes, the marriage tent is dark, and Jacob's had probably a little too much wine. And then Jacob brings in the heavily veiled daughter of his to Jacob. And then their conversation in the tent is probably in whispers, disguising Leah's voice. And the marriage is consummated. In the Hebrew, it says literally in verse 25, And when morning came, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> you know, I have to wonder how Rachel and Laban's wife put up with this deception. Well, Jacob goes to Laban, Why have you deceived me? And Jacob here uses the same word that Isaac used in Genesis 27:35 when he said to Esau, Your brother Jacob came and deceived me and has taken away your blessing. You remember Jacob's name means deceiver. And so in effect, Jacob says to Laban here, Why have you Jacobed me? <laughs> and I guess you could call it poetic justice. You know, the punishment is fitting the crime. Jacob had wined and dined his father Isaac and had dressed himself up as Esau to dupe his own blind father. And now he gets a taste of his own medicine here as Laban wines and dines him and dresses up Leah as Rachel and dupes Jacob in the dark. Well, here's how it turns out in verses 26 to 30. Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. And Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. So Laban here is the arch manipulator. And as I said before, these will be years of spiritual formation for Jacob. The rough chiseling work of sanctification is going on in his life. Jacob is being humbled in order to someday rule God's chosen family. According to God's model for servant leadership. And it's through Laban's deceit here and Leah's dress-up that God holds up to Jacob a mirror image of himself. You know, his own dress-up as Esau is reflected in the dress-up of Leah. And Jacob is deceived in the darkness like his blind father Isaac was deceived by him, relying only on his sense of touch. One brother exchanged for another, one sister exchanged for another. 
You see, what Jacob had done to others, now others had done to him. And he reaps what he has sown. And so Jacob here gets to see himself as he really is. And in this process, he's, he's being prepared to meet God more deeply. Now you and I won't find ourselves exactly in Jacob's position, but marriage does find us out. You know, marriage is a part of that rough, chiseling work of sanctification in our lives. And God here wants to bless Jacob just as he wants to bless us. But he can't do it until we get real. And marriage is one of the great reality therapies of life. It's where we discover what we're really like. So God will carry on his work in Jacob here, but unfortunately because of Jacob and Laban's deceit here, others have been hurt. Women didn't have a lot of say in those days, and Leah here goes through hell because of these men. She's married to a man who doesn't love her, and the one he does love, also now his wife, is her sister who lives right there under the same roof. Talk about sibling rivalry. Poor Leah having to joylessly finish out the customary wedding week, fully sensing Jacob's pain and anger and rejection. So I want to draw out some lessons from this story. There's some good news for us and there's some bad news. I'll give you the bad news first. First, you never just commit sin. Sin commits you. I mean, people often think when we sin, it's just an action in a moment of time, but it's not. The Bible indicates that when we sin, it releases a destructive power that continues to ricochet around in our life. And when Isaac selfishly favored Esau, look what it did to Rebekah and Jacob. And now we see Laban and Jacob doing the same kind of thing to Rachel and Leah. And further on, as we'll see in the third generation, it will mean that Leah's children are going to hate Rachel's children. Sin begets sin. It's like a boulder thrown into a lake and the ripples just go on and on. You don't just commit sin, sin also commits you. You don't really get away from all of its consequences. Things that violate God's will for how you should, should live, you never truly get away with. Though thank God, there is forgiveness through Jesus. The second bit of bad news is that everything in this life is marked by a certain degree of disappointment. You know, Jacob thinks, at last I'll be happy. I've got Rachel, but in the morning, it's Leah. And we live in a, a fallen world. No matter what it is that we hope for, marriage, career, family, retirement, there will always be a certain Leah factor, a degree of disillusionment, something less than the ideal that we imagined. C.S. Lewis said it this way, said, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. He's talking about that inner God-shaped vacuum within us that nothing in this world can truly fill or satisfy. 
There's lots of things in this world that hold great promise, but there's always something in the longing for it that fades away in the reality. It's never quite what we'd hoped. And you know, we can respond to that by blaming others, blaming our spouse, blaming our boss, blaming the kids, blaming the economy, whatever. Or we can just become cynical and just blame life and we can say, oh, well, I'll never hope about anything again. Or we can agree with C.S. Lewis and say, well, if nothing in this world is truly Rachel, then Rachel must be something beyond this world. If we blame others for it, we're being foolish. If we blame life in general, we're being cynical. But the third option is what makes you a Christian. It's knowing that everything in this fallen world is tainted with a degree of failure and disappointment because of sin, and that true satisfaction cannot be had from this world alone. And so the bad news is that sin has lasting effects in our life, and it has tainted everything in this fallen world. But here's the good news. First of all, somehow God is drawn to weak people. Remember Jacob in the last chapter there? He was alone, he was helpless, he was a fugitive on the run. And it's then that God reveals to him, him, to him something in a dream, something from beyond this world. A stairway from heaven to earth with angels ascending and descending. And that's a picture of God's grace, something that comes from beyond this world. It's not God sitting at the top of that stairway and saying, work harder, get your life together. No, it's God who sends his son, Jesus Christ, down that stairway to live the life that you should have lived, to, live, to die the death that you should have died. And that's why the stories in the Bible are not just all about great role models that we should imitate, but they're about weak people like you and me. And about a God who himself becomes weak for our sake and dies on a cross to save us. You see, God is drawn to us in our weaknesses. They're the places where he can gain entry into our lives. Secondly, God works through weak people. You know, Laban hurt Jacob pretty badly. But if we understand how God used Laban in Jacob's life, we'll see that it's through Laban and all of his conniving that Jacob finally begins to see himself as he is and to be humbled. And so God works in our lives through weak people. Maybe there's a Laban in your life, a weak person that God is using for his purposes in your life. Or maybe he's using you in someone else's life. But God is drawn to weak people, and he uses weak people. By grace, he often chooses the unworthy and the unwashed. And having chosen someone like Jacob, God's grace will not let him go. So why does God choose to work through people like this? Well, I think the answer is made a little clearer centuries later by another encounter between a man and a woman at a well. As we read earlier, there in Samaria, by a well that was actually dug by Jacob long before, 
Jesus meets a woman. A woman who's a Samaritan, but a woman who's also her lifestyle that even made Jacob seem like an upstanding citizen. And we see this in John 4, 4 to 26, where, where God again reveals himself to a sinner. A woman who had scandalized her whole neighborhood. She'd struggled with long, a long string of marriages and divorces and relationships outside of marriage. And, and here she comes to the well, alone and like a fugitive. And in that Eastern culture, a man would never speak to her in public. But Jesus did. And Jesus asked her to give him a drink of water. And then he told her that the reason that he came into the world was because his father was seeking worshipers. Worshipers who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And the worshipers that God is seeking are not those who have their lives all together or think they have, but those who will become showcases of his grace. Where God provides all the goodness, all the goodness they'll ever need that's found in Jesus Christ. All they contribute is their own emptiness and their need and a willingness to repent. So the result of that meeting at the well was more than just a cup of water. It was living water. Eternal life for her and for many of her neighbors too when she told them about Jesus. So as we're going to see, God was not finished with Jacob, not by a long shot. He's going to pursue Jacob through many more rough providences until he too becomes a showcase for God's grace. Ultimately, Jacob will abandon all of his clever strategies and return to worship God at Bethel, the God of grace. So how about you? Are you becoming a showcase of God's grace? Do you know the depth of sin that remains in your heart? Do you know that we are actually unlikely candidates for God's love and goodness? But have you experienced God's pursuit of you? And maybe through some rough providences along the way. If so, praise God. God who won't let you go but will continue to shape you into the person he longs for you to become. You know, even the, most, the hardest and most disappointing experiences in life, if they're directed Godward, can become the crucible for forming faith and holiness in our lives. The good news is, that God takes the most flawed material and keeps working through the circumstances in our lives, including our marriages, to turn us into something of eternal and breathtaking beauty. Amen.